This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my interview with Mark Strauss was recorded in July of 2021. But now to the business at hand. Uh, We will be talking uh, with Mark Strauss, who has never been on this show before, but very pleased to have him here. He is a poet and a writer uh, and an art collector uh, with a gallery, but he's also a former medical oncologist. And we will be talking about an interesting new work called One-Legged Mongoose, Secrets, Legacies, and Coming of Age in 1950s New York, uh, told by a true uh, Renaissance man and child of the baby boom eras, Mark Strauss. Mark, uh, how are you, my friend? Thank you. Thanks for having this conversation. Well, do you still refer to yourself ever uh, as doctor? Uh, many people do, who uh, were part of that era of my life. In the gallery, it's very unusual. All right, well, let's do this. Let's give our Lewis at Large listeners a little bit more of a setup here. Uh, take us, if you would, Mark, uh, take us from your journey uh, from school to oncology. Uh, And then from oncology, the leap to being a writer, poet, art collector, etc. I was an extraordinarily well-read kid. Uh, It was a way into fiction, which I loved. And when I went through high school and entered college, I wasn't a pre-med major. I was certain I wasn't going to medical school. Of course, I was wrong. And uh, it's one of these things. I took all the pre-med prerequisites, uh, decided I would apply early, and when they took me, I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. But then then I loved it. And um, I, I probably worked as hard as one can work as a physician. I had incredibly long hours as an oncologist for many, many years. But I realized kind of mid-career in my 40s that I had a need to write. And I followed the instinct and signed up for one poetry course at the 92nd Street Y in New York. And I was very lucky. And I began to write things that I didn't really know I knew. I began writing poems in the voice of patience, a little old lady, a teenage boy, and then eventually poems in the voice of the oncologist. And with no expectation anything would come of this, the works were published pretty quickly, and Northwestern did the next three collections. So it, it, it was rewarding, and um, I wanted to write prose, and I thought, my God, this is going to be easy if I could have this kind of traction with poetry. <clears throat> but I found it difficult. And the book I wanted to write for a long time that I have finally written uh, is the first book of prose to come out, 
which is one-legged mongoose. Uh, the art portion of my life began very early. Uh, I, you see in the book, I was this prodigious collector as a little kid. I was really focused. I was that baseball card collector at a young age who didn't just want a Mickey Mantle card or a Willie Mays. I wanted the cards of the older players no longer playing <clears throat> in mint condition. And so I set out to do that and accumulated some extraordinary cards. But as I was entering medical school, I realized I wanted to collect art, and I didn't have any money. I was in school on scholarship, so I had a weekend job, and I began to frequent studios and learn, and I began to collect very contemporary art. And I was fortunate because many of those artists became very well-known, and um, years, years later, we wanted to give something back to the community. We opened a public museum in a very indigent area, and it's helped reshape that area. And then I um, really was ready to stop practicing full-time. Oncology is very difficult. Uh, I decided to open an art gallery so I could speak for a handful of artists and try to do something positive for their careers. So hopefully that's a short enough story. Let me ask you something. Uh, there doesn't seem to be, logic would say, there's not much of a link or a connection between writing and your work in oncology. As you look back on it, was there a link? Was there a common thread? Was there a common energy or something that would somehow link those two and suddenly make those two links very logical? Well, that's a great question. When I started writing poetry, it was instinct. I had published uh, a lot of science. I edited several textbooks of lung cancer. Uh, I was a hardcore bench scientist. And that's how I was disciplined. But something else happened in poetry. It was allowing the unconscious to come in, uh, allowing a poem to take its own shape. And I began to realize that um, if you're doing really creditable bench research, some of that is a factor. It's not just accumulating thousands of facts and crafting something a little bit different. And so allowing that imaginative process to come in was part of what I learned. Maybe if you're really a good diagnostician, you're doing some of that as well. And then in poetry, um, I realized I had a need to speak for the patient. I had a need to talk about the communication between doctor and patient. I mean, not just in cancer medicine, but especially in cancer medicine. Uh, a patient comes in to me, and this is an extraordinarily difficult moment. 
they've learned they have cancer, and one is trying to explain what it is and what you hope to do. And optimally, you need the patient there with you. You need them fighting the fight. And as you're speaking to a patient, it's understandable they don't necessarily hear things the way you think you're saying them. They're internalizing it differently. So I needed to give that voice. And um, then I began to realize, I thought as an art collector, (laughs) once again, I was a very methodical guy. I was someone who, when I got sufficiently interested in an artist, would try to learn everything, everything they had done, and accumulate all the facts. But then that decision of what you love is ineffable. You are crossing into some territory that's not completely definable. And so dealing with both facets has been an education for me as well, and I've enjoyed it immensely. Um, Some of my best time is just thinking I'm cooking on a good poem. If you just joined us, yours truly, Warner Lewis from the flight deck of Lewis at Large, and we've got a good one going here with Mark Strauss, uh, former medical oncologist, but uh, you know him present day as a poet and a writer and art collector, also uh, runs the Mark Strauss Gallery in New York City. We're talking about a brand new work called One-Legged Mongoose, Secrets, Legacies, and Coming of Age in 1950s New York. Well, Mark, let's turn our attention uh, to the book. Um, This really zeroes in specifically uh, on a couple of very important years in your childhood, uh, living out on Long Island. And if you would, give us a little bit of a setup here and share with us some of the circumstances and sort of the background of the book. Uh, Thanks. The book uh, is narrated by the kid. And that was the only way I knew how to write the book. Um, My memory was sparked by going back and being there again and living in that place and seeing it and hearing it and kind of stepping away as the adult who now knows too much and letting the kid with all his limitations speak. And the book opens when I'm told I'm going to be transferring from a public school in New York after five years uh, to a very religious parochial school in Queens, and I'm to take my kid brother, and we're gonna, it's going to take us two hours each way to travel by train and subway. And I was never really told the explanation, and... I'm dropped off in a world which is completely foreign to me. And out on Long Island, uh, we went to a miserable public school, and we were in an area that was brutally anti-Semitic. And I found my way through childhood becoming a street fighter. And my brother, who was a very tiny, afraid kid, needed protection. And I thought, well, Queens was going to be way worse. 
I expected gangs, and I expected something that really didn't happen. And I entered this universe where the kids were different, they dressed differently, but they were smart. And it took a while, and I was a truant, but eventually I find some home in that place. So was it, as you, as you look back on this, what, what came first? The memories uh, and how to encapsulate those years, or was the book an idea first and you decided to zero in on those years? Oh, it's hard to say. I think uh, the memories, many of the memories were still so clear, and this was such an important time in my life. And once I had decided I wanted to write the book, uh, I, I just went about simply beginning to write an episode. And once the door opened to that episode... It just flooded back. I could, I could see the day. I could hear the day. Uh, I could recount the conversation, and it was. I was back there again, which was a little frightening at times. So, when you go, when you went back, uh, dredging up memories, uh, easy to pen this, or was it uh, emotionally a little bit tough? It was emotionally very tough, and, um, you know, I was a kid who never cried. I was a kid who, uh, you know, almost couldn't be hurt in a fight because I could wall everything off. But going back, it was actually more painful because of where I am today, and I just had to let... I had to let the actual moment happen on the page, not embellish it. What about, uh, I'm just curious as to, again, what about the relationship of those, because we have not talked about this, in your family that are still, that you're still in contact with? What has been their reaction so far? Well, this is a book that um, takes place 1953 to 1955. And it's a time of the politics then in the United States. The situation of a first-generation immigrant family uh, out in Long Island. And it was also a, um, a home where there was horrible physical abuse that was kept from everybody. I mean, this was a secret that was never spoken about. And I, you know, I was, I was the recipient, not my older sister, a younger brother, of the abuse. And I always thought over the years, it's affected the three of us in different ways. Uh, and it turned out to be true. But for me, it was important to be open about it. It was important um, not to disguise it because it's a poison. And if, if, you, if you can find a way to deal with it, uh, you have a greater chance of growing up 
and without quite as much harm and poison in your own life. So I needed to write this, and I needed to do it as objectively as possible. My kid brother um, and I remained very close every minute of our lives, and he was a brilliant scientist and became head of an institute at National Institute of Health. And uh, Stephen died of brain cancer at age 60, and it was just uh, horrible. I, I helped take care of him. And my oldest sister, Miriam, we see her portrayed in the book where the only way she knew how to deal with it was turn the other way and not not watch. And I think that's been a part of her growing up and throughout her life. Uh, my brother asked me not to publish, not to write and publish this book while our mom was alive, and I kept that promise. Any particular reason, as you look back, why do you believe I'm trying. It's just so hard for so many people to imagine a mother uh, abusing a child, their their own child. Any reason why, from a more global look, why she did that? And two, any reason why you were the target of it versus your other siblings? Well, the second question, at least, I've never been asked before, which is, which is really great. Um, of course, at that time, I couldn't have known. I just dealt with it, and I, I just was stoic. And then as I get older through this book, 10 to 12, I mean, I was a kid who did everything I could to get stronger and stronger. And, and I kept thinking, okay, I will find a way to stop it. I'm getting bigger. I'm getting stronger. And finding that way proved very difficult. I think today that, uh, to me, she was clearly bipolar. And she was somebody who refused and would have refused any treatment, any medication. And an extraordinarily brilliant woman who... Uh, had had a childhood where she had the opportunity to become one of the great pianists in the world. And she was wrenched uh, out of high school before she graduated. It was the Depression, and she was sent to work, which she did. And she gave up the piano, but her piano teacher winded up trying to teach me, which, of course, didn't work at all. But he bemoaned the fact that you never get a pupil in your life like this. So she was somebody with talent uh, and opportunity that didn't get to use it. And that's not so unusual in that generation, especially women. And aside from that, I think her being clinically bipolar, when she would go into these rages, she was a different place. She was a different person. It it would come on, and then it would fade, and it was like Jekyll and Hyde. 
and she knew she was doing it, and she implored me incredibly enough not to tell my father. Um, why me? Uh, once she gave a terrible, terrible excuse, which was um, I was the kid who would be able to do anything I wanted. I was gifted, and she wanted to make sure I never got lazy. Well, there's never a good, never a good reason to hit a kid, and um, you know she was uncontrollable. Was your even though you didn't say anything? Do you think your father had an awareness of what was going on, or was he truly completely clueless about it? My father preferred to be clueless about a lot of things. Uh, he was a very quiet man, and something that changed my understanding of him was for my fifth birthday, I asked for a birthday present, and he said, oh, well, I bought you something. I said, well, I know you got me a Schwinn, and I knew it was used, and... Um, I said, no, that's not what I want. I told him I wanted to work in a store on Sundays. I was five. And he was an immigrant who came here without an education, and he was self-educated. And sometime in his 20s, he opened a textile store, a wholesale store on the Lower East Side of New York, which happens to be across the street from where my gallery is today. And I I went in at age five, and my first job was stacking pillowcases, size to size, color to color. Within a couple of years, I was selling full-time. At the store, my father was brilliant. He was loquacious. He knew all the customers. He could sell. He knew what they bought. On the way back, on the way to his store... My father would spew forth about politics. He would be shaking his hand at the windshield, listening to the radio. And I got to know so much about him. I mean, my God, he knew almost everything going on, and he had strong opinions. He got home, he shut up. And um, there was a part of him that couldn't stand conflict. Well, it is a decidedly personal and poignant look back on an important period uh, in the life of a baby boomer. The work is called One-Legged Mongoose, Secrets, Legacies, and Coming of Age in 1950s New York by former oncologist, uh, now Potter, Potter, poet, writer, and art collector, uh, as well as running his own gallery, Mark Strauss. Mark, uh, before we uh, get out of here, first of all, thank you for sharing this with us. Uh, how can people pick up a copy of the work? And also, you've got, you're have got you quite a prolific writer. How can people find out more and, and get exposure uh, and see some of your other work? Uh, well, thanks. Um, the website for the writing is Mark J. Strauss, M-A-R-C-J. S-T-R-A-U-S dot com. The book is moments away from being available on pre-order, and then it's coming out publicly September 14th. Um, this book, by the way, enabled me to go back 
and now I have a good draft of a memoir uh, of the year I was five. And <laughs> that's uh, a whole other story, how one can do that. But it's, um, you know, I think it's equally interesting. And one of the things for me about this book that's important, it can't just be about abuse. You know, I'm hoping that it's so much of a rich story and into the life of a kid and a family and an upbringing. And this was a moment in America that, as other moments, was pivotal. Pivotal. We were in the midst of the McCarthy trial. We were in the midst of finishing the Korean War. And these things going on around us became a fabric of my life and the book. Well, thanks so much again for uh, sharing this story, uh, told in even more detail in, uh, in the book itself. But I appreciate it very, very much. And uh, it probably begs the question, uh, maybe it's destined to be a movie. Who knows? And uh, who? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> so, so. All right. Well, real quickly, I, I've asked a couple of guests recently this. Who, who plays you in the movie? They should probably pick an unknown. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody fabulous with bright red hair. And it'll give them their big break. All right. Listen, again, thank you so much, and uh, best of luck with the book, and have a wonderful 2021. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You bet. We'll be back with more right after this on Lewis at Large. Hey, thanks so much. Oh, you're great. You've asked unbelievable questions. Thank you. Oh, great. Hey, be sure and tell Lissa that. Lissa Warren's one of my favorites. Really? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to tell her that because in past years, I was interviewed a gazillion times about my science research, etc. Uh, you're the best. Wow. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Be sure and tell her that, but she'll get a kick out of it. I will. All Thanks right. so much. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.